Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Welcome again to the uh, sexual abuse and this link to sex addiction. My name is Marty and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Uh, we're Judson R. Now from Seattle, Washington. You spear from Nashville, and I will be your uh, honored leaders in this session. Uh, in the spirit of the fifth tradition, to carry this message, this session, excuse me, this session will be recorded. The recorder will not be turned off during this session. If you do not wish to be recorded, you may participate by listening or attend another session. We ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone, so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion. Do not tamper with the recording equipment. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Uh, those who care to join me in the opening of this session with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. The wisdom to know the difference. Uh, the essay purpose, Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for essay membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. Essay is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It's not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. Um, guidelines for sharing, because our common welfare comes first, uh, here are the guidelines for sharing during this meeting. We do not cross-talk. That is, we share with the group as a whole rather than addressing any individual member. We speak in the I, not the we or the you. We leave our other identities at the door, including politics, religions, therapies, treatment centers, occupations, and other 12-step issues. We speak about and from the essay point of view. Our meetings focus on the essay approach to recovery, so whenever possible we avoid the mention of titles and authors that are not essay-approved literature. We avoid profanity, sexual descriptions, and sexually abusive language. When sharing strays from the topic, we can remind each other of our commitment to these guidelines by quietly raising our hands. Uh, a panelist for this, this session are myself, Marty Q, here from Nashville, covering sexaholic, and uh, Judson R. from Seattle, Washington. Uh, each of our panelists will share for a few minutes on the topic. We'll then open up the meeting for sharing for, or questions. Again, we ask that those who choose to share step up to the microphone so that those who listen to the recording can follow the discussion. Uh, we ask that you be mindful of time to allow others a chance to share. I'm going to, uh, while Judson gets started, I'm going to set a few chairs over here for folks who want to get in line to ask questions or share their own experience. Um, let's see. And I think we're supposed to share for about 10 to 15 minutes apiece on our experience with this. So I'm going to uh, let Judson take the stand. This is Judson, folks. Hi everybody, my name is Judson and I'm a good and worthwhile person worthy of recovery and recovering today from my sex addiction. I'm glad to be here um, specifically on this topic. Marty contacted me a month or two ago about this topic. Um, and the, the key thing that I want to emphasize around this entire topic is, is it good? Is it's not my fault. And I believe for each one of us, my personal opinion, 
it's not our fault. Or if I'm talking to an individual person, it's not your fault. Um, I was... Just a little little background on this, uh, my story. In 1979, I went to Alcohol Family Week where my mom was in treatment for alcoholism. And I um, was 19 and I went aside with my father and the group counselor and I said, you know, this whole addiction thing that you're drawing on the board that goes in a cycle like this, that this is just what I seem to do with pornography. It seems like this just exact thing. And he said... No, that's just normal. And then he followed it up by saying, matter of fact, if I have a really stressful day at work, I go rent some pornographic videos to watch to release my stress. So they hadn't quite yet, you know, in 1979, gotten the whole picture of sexual addiction. Um, And then I was back in Minnesota in 86 at... Golden Valley Health Center for a month of sexual addiction treatment because I kept bringing this up. I uh, bring it up with my counselors that I would see for Al-Anon issues, ACOA issues, all this stuff, and kept bringing it up, up and up and up, and finally was guided to a counselor who said, take this test, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I do all these things, so you're a sex addict. Um, so continued to recover from the acting out and then putting more and more pieces together as to, you know, why do I do this? Because I didn't, you know, pop out of the womb saying, when I grow up, I want to be a sex addict. Um, and I listened, I heard um, Pat Carn speak in probably 1991 or give or take a couple of years in there. And um, he was in Nashville giving a, a but I think an all-day talk on addiction or something like that, sexual addiction. And one phrase he said stuck with me, which is, you put a child in a dysfunctional family and then you throw in a little bit of sexual dysfunction and sexual addiction is like a heat-seeking missile. You can't dodge a heat-seeking missile. You can't do it. And it's that little kid who's in a dysfunctional family who's afraid of dad's rage or mom's rage or brother or grandmother who knows things are chaotic who doesn't have necessarily a safe place to always go to or a safe person to always go to. And then there's some sexual dysfunction in there in the family whether it's come down you know, in my case, from both sides of the family, from multiple previous generations, or whether it's introduced from some external factor, you put in some sexual dysfunction, and the kids, it's just, you know, it's a way to escape. Kept me from jumping out of the window. I lived on third floor of a house, and I could see the driveway down there, and wondered how bad would the injury be, would I die or not. But I could escape for a while into fantasy and pornography. Um, So I truly, deeply believe that anyone who has a sexual addiction, that it is not their fault. And my experience has been, most people I talk to, it didn't start when they were 46. You know, it started this high. I knew when I was in pre-kindergarten that it was something thrilling or there's a thrill or a chance that the 65, 70-year-old overweight kindergarten teacher might step across my mat that I was lying down to sleep on during nap time and I might see up her dress and that there was something there that was exciting. I knew that, and I knew it at that age. And you don't make that up when you're a kid, and you don't come up with it by yourself. You don't. My boys don't have it. i got a 14-year-old, 11-year-old. It doesn't cross their mind. Most people, it doesn't cross their mind. 
but I figured it out somehow when I was that little. And I have some clues as to how I figured it out. But the main piece is it wasn't my fault and I learned it really young. Um, So um, I did a lot of work around my family of origin and my learning as I was a kid and stuff. And the most Im- one of the most important things I learned uh, was when I did a fourth step around all of the sexual experiences I had from as early as I could remember on up through acting out. But particularly the ones up to teenage years. You know, up till the time when I got out of the house. So I wrote down, you know, just like it does in the big book, what happened, what I felt like, what the underlying feelings were, etc. And then they told me to add a column of what did you learn? And that was the most enlightening piece. Because when my dad raged at me, and I felt afraid and I expressed my feelings with crying and he continued to rage I learned that kids feelings don't have to be respected I learned through lots of other experiences that kids aren't necessarily precious they don't really have to be protected I learned that any kind of nudity was sexual. Anytime you saw nudity, that was sexual. I learned that by watching my dad, by watching my mom, by watching my grandmother, by watching my great-grandmother, and I knew that by the time I was that big, that if there was skin showing, you should be looking because there was something interesting there. My kids don't have that. My wife never had that. That's why my wife could never understand what, you know, you go to a, see a movie and they show some nudity and so what? It's nudity. I mean, it's not sexual. Never even... The, the brain connections for her and many others never even got connected that nudity equals sexuality. But they did for me and they did at that size because I knew when I was little. Um, I saw on the sheet that there was a bunch of groups, uh, some breakout meetings on fetishes. And my experience of talking to people who have different triggers, I, I just call, I think, I, I, I would call fetish more of a kind of a personal trigger. My experience has been, it's at, at least from the people I've talked to and discussions I've had, it's almost always related to an experience often an experience in childhood where the uh, where the thing that's exciting or erotic or attracting or whatever was related to a situation in childhood where something like that happened or was presented in thinking about happened and the kid was there and there was a little bit of sexual energy or sexual excitement plus fear those kind of things mixed up, fusing it into an experience of fear, terror, adrenaline, and the sexual attraction. So, um, I mean, I can give you bazillions examples of friends of mine who were triggered by bare feet, another friend of mine who was triggered by blonde hair. I, I'm not triggered by bare feet. You have your bare feet all day long. It's not going to even... You know, and people, I have friends who, who talk about exposing themselves. And uh, I have one friend of mine in particular who struggles with that. It's his big trigger, exposing himself. I personally don't get that. I mean, that's just the furthest thing from my mind. You might, why would that be intriguing to you? And then we go on and talk about it. And he said, well, when I was little, my sisters were always interested in, you know, looking at me and da-da-da-da-da. There was that connection that there was more to it than whereas for me it's voyeurism well gee why your voyeurism I mean 
the, the, probably the single most inefficient way to see nudity is to stand outside a house and wait for somebody to come in front of the window and dress. <laughs> you know, if you wanted, I mean, you know, you could go to the TV, you can go da 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 But why is that fused as a trigger and connected the nudity with sexuality? Well, if you have a child growing up where they're being exposed to and seductively, you know, treated and exposed to, that's, that's fused in there. So... Um, I have a friend of mine um, in Seattle where I now live that uh, she's talked about and matter of fact she did it to me in her and it didn't actually I, I, I've been around recovery for a little while so it didn't actually affect me because I knew what it was but she was in she was new she was doing her 90 and 90 and she you know had an affair and was why do I want to entice men and be in these whatever and you know she ended up sharing something whatever and then I shared and whatever and I looked over and she looked at me and smiled and winked and the wink was just a perfect hey buddy you know one of those kind of and I knew that it was totally subconscious didn't even it was not, you know, so deeply ingrained from that age. And when we've talked in detail about her background as her kid, if you got a dad who's a sex addict, how do you get the dad's attention if you're a female? I mean, it's, you know, oh, he sees you maybe in your underwear, or you look at what he's looking like. Oh, that woman is walking in a saucy fashion, you know, so... Maybe if I do that, I'll be more attractive. Or as my brothers and I all learned, uh, how does a woman want to be spoken to in a flirtatious manner? Because that's how we related to my mom and my grandmother and my great-grandmother and whatever. So we were always terrific at flirting. And, you know, it goes on until it's, it's, it's just subconscious and not even thought about. So, so the main thing that... Uh, I really wanted to share is um, it's not my fault it's not I don't think any addict's fault I think it started little little and I think it's totally unavoidable I don't think I think I think anybody you know you told any kid age 6 8 10 12 whatever um, you know I want you to avoid becoming a sex addict. And, you know, it's like a heat-seeking missile. You can't avoid it. So uh, that's all I'll share for starters. I'll let Marty jump up. And if I have other thoughts, I'll come back. Thanks. Uh, Marty, sexaholic. Also a recovering incest survivor and... Uh, the good news is, is um, it's possible to heal from this, and I have. And I'm, I'm more excited about the next session, about how to heal from this, because that's been my life's work the last well, 22 years. Um, and like Judson, um, sometimes I, I feel like a broken record in the rooms. My, my sexual addiction, when I have lust come up, I have never lusted to lust. I lust because I'm uncomfortable. I feel fear. I feel shame. The little kid in me is uncomfortable, and uh, I had two incidences of sexual abuse in my life that uh, really created the DOS hard drive template at a young age, of which every sexual experience I had from 1972 up until I got sober, started getting sober, sober sexually in 1987. Everything was built onto that. First, when I was uh, sexually. Uh, abused by an older cousin of mine and my siblings were there and I'm really making highlights to tell you this stuff about what is the connection between this abuse and how it's played itself out in my adult life and in my addiction my siblings were there and I was all in my home alcoholic home a dysfunctional family and by the way what Judson said is exactly my experience uh, John Bradshaw said one time where there's dysfunction there's sexual dysfunction and I know that to be true in my own life, um, and also know that my sexuality and my spirituality are pretty closely entwined like a rope for me. And uh, so if there's sex, spiritual dysfunction, my home is probably going to be some sexual dysfunction. But uh, my, my siblings were there. Nobody ever talked about it afterwards. 
but we were all bonded by this trauma that occurred. And my older cousin would have had it also uh, sexually molested my sister, but nobody ever talked about it. If we did, we joked about it. And what I later came to realize was that's what trauma bonding is, is you bond over trauma. When guys go to war together, and sometimes I'll watch these shows on PBS, these Vietnam vets who haven't seen each other in 30, 40 years, they, they meet and they immediately start crying and they embrace. They've ex experienced trauma and that's where their bond is. And every primary relationship I ever had from the time I was six years old until I got into the pro these rooms in 1987 was over trauma bonding. Um, I was in a gang of a bunch of scared white kids out in Montana and we were violent. We had all the signals of a gang, but we didn't have tattoos and we didn't shoot anybody, but we were a gang and we all had the same similar trauma in our families. Um, I later found out that my mother, uh, she was incredibly close to, a, to her uh, cousin and she later actually found out it was her half-sister. Uh, my grandfather impregnated his wife's sister and this girl was born into the family and the tra sexual trauma that occurred in my family occurred between those two families started it with the grandparents and worked itself all the way down into the grandkids and us grandkids did not know that nobody spoke about it but we experienced it and we bonded and trauma over sexual trauma all of our lives. I didn't know that until I was in recovery for 10 years and my mom said, I got some information. She said, I suspected this all of my life and I'm going to tell you this. And she told me that my Aunt Rose was actually her half-sister. And they looked almost identical. It was really amazing. All of a sudden these little pieces started falling in. So, Also, in, in one of the S recovery programs, there's a, uh, a story in the book about this, uh, this young man who got started to get sober in one of these S fellowships and his dad later got sober in the exact same corner in uh, Des Moines, Iowa that he acted, his father acted out with with prostitutes. His son didn't know about it, had never been told about it. That is the exact same corner he acted out with it with the exact same prostitutes. And so some of this stuff is cellular, I believe, and it's been my experience as well. I was told, and I've done work around the sexual, one-time sexual abuse incident with my cousin three times, and I, I, every time I thought I was done with it, and this last time I went out to the meadows for treatment with rage, and this uh, had a, a really, really good counselor out there who'd been sober as long as, longer than I was in, in, in AA and an SA, and he just looked at me and he said, this, this one incident was the hard drive under which your entire sexual uh, being was, was forged in. And he said, you're going to find the links to this all the way down into your sex life today. And I did. Part of what that did for me of being sexually abused in the presence of my family members was it created two things. I grew up in a family where there were no parental issues. Both my folks at that time were drinking. My mom's now been sober almost 40 years. But us children were foxhole buddies. We they keep using the word we trauma bonded. We were foxhole buddies and we took care of each other. They were my family. And when this occurred, I was afraid to say no. I was afraid I'd be left. I was afraid I'd be the outcast of the family. Um, I was afraid to fight back. Of all the siblings in my family, I'm the bar fighter. And it was the one time in my life that I did not fight back. I was afraid that my older cousin, who we all looked up to, would leave me. There would be abandonment. I would be shamed and ridiculed because I didn't participate. And that meant more to me to have loyalty in a family than it did to say no and take care of myself. Today in my life, the part of my sex life with my wife that I'm growing up is to say no. Um, I'm 43. My libido's not quite what it used to be in my 20s. You add, add about 20-some years of sex addiction recovery onto that. My libido's separate from my lust now, so I just don't feel like being sexual enough. And I get so little when it comes time to say no. And so that's my growth edge. And it's the same. It, it, what it does is it triggers that same stuff that I experienced as a kid. And my job in this relationship is to show up as an adult, 43-year-old Marty, leave the little kid out, take care of him, and, of course, you know, boundarize that angry adolescent addict and come to the table as an adult and discuss that with my wife, which I have. But I go to, I go to my sponsor and I go to other safe people first, and, and I, I talk about that stuff and the hurt and the kid so I can go there. And I ask my wife if she's interested in talking about it. Sometimes she is, sometimes she isn't. The second incident in my life of sexual abuse was with my younger sister, who I've done a tremendous amount of therapy work with a lot over the years. We were really, really close, um, like my mom and her half-sister were. And uh, I was told, 
I was in a, a session, a counseling session one time, and, and let me say that a lot, a lot of guys don't come to this program with the scar tissue I did. Um, I had a guy with almost 44 years of sobriety in AA told me, he said, I've heard a lot of stories, but I've never heard. He said, I've heard a lot of stories. He said, and I know that most people don't come to this program with the scar tissue you did. And he kind of validated the fact that, you know, I needed some outside help here. And I, I, I count the outside help I, I, have, I have gone through with the 12 steps, and they've both been just as important to me. And I can't make that judgment call either way, but they've both been vital to me. And this relationship with my sister, I realized this counselor, like I said, I've done a tremendous amount of work around this, was able to really heal this thing with my sister. And this counselor looked at me and she said, uh, I was talking about putting some final touches on this thing with my sister. We had this emotional and physical relationship from the time I was 8 until I was probably 16 or 17 years old. And she just very quietly got up and she went over to this uh, thing where she does this work in her office and she grabbed this garden hose and it was about that long. She brought it to me and she said, I want you to stand up and I want you to hold this to your stomach. And she said, imagine a vacuum coming through that. And she said, when children are born, they will love. They will find something to attach to and something to bond with to love because it has to be crystallized. And she said, you walked around with this hose with this vacuum on it going, somebody loved me. Am I really a person? Somebody loved me. And my sister was walking around with hers. My older brother and my older sister had theirs turn inward. And my younger sister and I were just connected like this. And she said, young children who grow up in dysfunctional homes, um, they don't bond to hurt each other. They bond out of safety, security, and protection. And there was this, nobody ever told me, you will take care of your younger sister, you'll be her surrogate father, and she in turn will comfort you. Nobody ever said that in my family, but that's exactly what that relationship was. Um, and I, like I said, I've been able to go back and heal that. My sister has her own things going on. And one of the, one of the beauties in that thing with me, uh, when I started to get sober in, uh, in another S program, um, was I really took responsibility for that. I really, really felt responsible. And a guy told me one time in an S group, and he was in this experiential group and in the 12-step S, S program with me, he looked at me and he said, Marty, he said, how old were you when this happened? I said, it probably started when I was about seven or eight. And he said, okay, so you're eight years old and you're taking responsibility for an entire abuse cycle that you didn't have a choice in, that as a child you were trying to be an adult as an eight-year-old. He said, you're not responsible for this. You know? And I could, not, I, I, just, I, I could not make those line up. And my sister let me off the hook. Everybody let me off the hook. And I had to finally let myself off the hook and say, you know what? Nobody's around to show me how to have a relationship with a sibling. Uh, nobody was there to parent. I did the best I could and shot the best stick I had. And so be it, you know, and, and was able to kind of cut myself free from that. So um, now how that is all that equates to my sex addiction is I have broken this program down into two things for me. This is, this is the guy here. This is the 43-year-old man here today talking. I feel centered and present in my body. Um, there's a party that wants to go back in there and continue jamming because I really love playing music, so it's hard for me to kind of stay focused when I hear that. But um, There's two parts to me. And I've been talking about this for about two years now in the meetings, and sometimes you guys from Nashville can get up and leave anytime because you've heard this a hundred times. But... I learned that there's two parts to this addiction for me. There's an angry adolescent who's my addict. He's the guy that makes me late. He's the guy that makes me broke. He's the guy that rages. He's the guy that shows up and tears everything to pieces. There's this little kid over here that's about six years old. Actually, he's probably about eight or nine now. He's grown up about two and a half years in the past 22 years of my recovered life. And the way out of this, the way, the way I really started to really innately understand my sex addiction and the healing from it was, uh, and Judson really was one of the first guys I really connected with him when I first got sober in SA. Because Judson talked about this inner child work, you know, and I can remember him sharing at meetings and thinking, oh my God, you can't be that vulnerable. You know? And I'll tell you the solution for me today is this. When I lust, something's going on with that little kid. And when he's hurt, he's scared, or he's feeling shame, that angry adolescent's entire job is to jump in and protect that vulnerability, which is what happened. The first time that sexual abuse occurred with me at six years old, that addict popped up there, that ego, and I was never again going to be vulnerable. That was my goal. And I went, went around protecting my vulnerability through alcohol, 
and addiction to sex and lust my whole life until it ran, that, that ship ran ashore into this mangled mess of wood, metal, and blood, and flesh. And I had to, I had to start reconstructing this guy. And so when I have lust today, um, I stop what I'm doing. And if it's at a place where I can't exactly start journaling with my little kid to find out what he's afraid about and start parenting him, I'll talk to him internally. And uh, when Judson used to say, you know, I'm a good and worthwhile person recovering today from my sex addiction, I used to cringe. And um, today, when he shares that, I'm right there with him because I get it. It's not my fault. I didn't ask for it. You know, my family and that addiction and that alcoholism and that sex addiction, those problems um, have some of, my pa- uh, some of my parents' fingerprints and their name on it. But my experience has been as the solution has my name on it and my name only. And it's my choice to remain a victim or my choice to remain an addict. And I can either get the healing or not. And through a lot of rough knocks in this program, mostly through emotional and spiritual pain, I've chosen the path of healing. And so far it's been the path of easier resistance for me, the path of less resistance. So um, what... This last year, I'll share this and then we can open up. This last couple of years when I really started working this, I've had a lot of people. That's a lot to me. A lot of men and some women come up and, and really want to get into this, into the work of what I've been doing. And sponsorship has been an absolute joy for me in this last two years because I really, really believe this. It's my experience and it's what I'm passionate about. Um, I don't have lust in my life today. I have fear and I have shame. And I have anger, and if those go unchecked, lust is the product of that. And so I have a choice today. I go in and I treat the, I treat the pain and I treat the hurt, and the, the, the lust goes away. And it's never about the lust. It, it, for me, it's always about 1976 or 1968 or 1981. It's rarely about 2010. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, and, I, and I'm also grateful for the opportunity to be able to share this. I, I can remember... Um, uh, in my very first group I was in where people were healing from this work um, I was sitting there and this guy he weighed 300 no he was over 400 pounds and he'd lost uh, 200 pounds and he was sitting in a group and he had skin that hung off of his body and he was in the process of going into surgery in two days to get that skin cut off from all the weight that he carried and he was a, a survivor of sexual abuse and, and I have to tell you that I grew up out in the northwest in a rough tough part of the world like I said I was in a gang I came to this town right here I bar fighting womanizing drunk from Montana and today you know I'm a creative sensitive man who's really capable of loving other people and receiving love that's the guy God created me that's a miracle on its own and I was still had a lot of ego hadn't addressed my alcoholism was just getting into recovery from my sexual addiction and this guy lit into some rage and some anger in this group and I didn't know this, but at the end of the group, I was underneath my chair. And the therapist said, you okay? And I said, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. And the guy said, what are you, you're underneath your chair. And I had no idea I was underneath my chair, you know, hiding from that stuff. And uh, he said, you know, you're, you're probably going to have to take a look at this. And I said, what? what? Take a look at what? And I was underneath the chair talking to him, you know. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not afraid to talk about this stuff today. I'm really not. I don't have any shame around it. Uh, I don't carry any amount of fear around it. I look at it as a necessary tool for me to get he- to get well and to heal. And that wasn't always the truth for me when I started to get well from uh, my sex addiction. So um, that's it for me. I-, I guess we'll open it up to questions, and if anybody has some comments or wants to share, we'll try to keep it under three minutes. So uh, thank you. Any questions or um, comments? Yes. Okay. Great. I'm a sex hawk. My name's Greg. Hi, everyone. From Barrie, Ontario. And uh, sexual abuse uh, was, you know, it's been a big part of uh, the healing journey for me. And, uh, I was sexually abused as a young boy a number of times, and I never spoke to anyone about that. I buried it, and I had a lot of shame around it. This gentleman's wearing a shirt that's called Fear. And when I was doing my fourth step, I recognized that uh, 
for me to be sexual, uh, to overcome the fear, I lusted. So that was present in every relationship, but I didn't tie it to the sex abuse until I got into recovery. And uh, interestingly enough, my wife, uh, we were a match because she had been sexually abused too. So, you, you know, when I, had, when, we, when I was sexual with her, I was never present. I, was, I had to have lust in order to be sexual, to be aroused, to come overcome the fear. And my wife, she would go catatonic. Like she would, to overcome her fear from her sexual abuse, she would lay there, and I would go into a fantasy of lust, and that's how we were sexual. There was no communication, no talking. We never, you know, we just didn't have those abilities. And, you know, thank God for, for SA, thank God for Essanon. And I try to keep, you know, the therapy things separate, but it's been an integral part of, of you know, both of our recoveries. Uh, to be able to uh, be physically intimate, we had to get emotionally intimate and spiritually intimate. And that included a time where, uh, when we were being physically intimate, we'd have to share our fear with one another. Rather than me going to lust, it had to be different for me. So we had to share, uh, I had to share my fear about, about physical touch. And, and for me, that's very, very difficult. And, uh, and that's, just, you know, that's where we are in our relationship today, where we're exploring uh, healthy dimensions to sexual intimacy. And, uh, you know, thank God I got the second chance to, uh, to become more whole. That's it. Thanks. Hi, I'm Shane, <coughs> recovering sexaholic, and um, I'm a little scared right now uh, to talk because um, for years I didn't talk about sexual abuse, and um, I began to open up about it a little bit. Um, three years ago and then two years ago when I came into uh, the SA rooms um, I talked about it some um, I was sexually abused when I was 14 so that made me older and um, my religious background I had um, given my life to God when I was 12 so because of that um, when I was sexually abused um, I had a lot of shame, a lot, a lot, a lot of shame. And uh, to be honest with you, um, I've not dealt with this enough. So I'm glad for this meeting that's happening right now. And I'm glad for the meeting that's going to happen after this one about overcoming uh, sexual abuse. Um, I went to the fetish meeting earlier and I realized that my sexual um, abuse has is related, just like other people were saying. It's related. And and I I get think about that and I get ashamed and I get mad. How could I how could I be attracted to that when that's how I was hurt? And um so I'm up here um, trying to put things out into the light because I haven't done that enough. And um, I'm glad I hear people say it's not my fault because um, I've dealt with that a lot of thinking that um, not only the sexual abuse but then the sexual addiction was completely my fault. And um, here in Nashville, there are people that say, and probably at meetings all over the place, but I, you know, I'm a good, worthwhile person, worthy of recovery. And um, I cringed when I heard those things too. And um, I, I told my sponsor, there's, an, there's another person who always shares, and every single time he shares, he says, um, I'm not a bad person becoming good. I'm a sick person becoming well. And I told my sponsor, I said, I don't believe that. That's a bunch of shit. <laughs> Excuse my language. I'm a bad person. If you knew the things I did, um, slowly but surely, um, I'm beginning to um, believe that. I told... Somebody else from Memphis that's in this fellowship uh, 
about that and uh, about how I just didn't believe it. And he said, well, I want you to start saying it at every meeting, whether you believe it or not. And um, that has helped tremendously. So um, I guess that's, that's ending in the solution. I'm Shane. I'm a sexaholic. I'm Bob. I'm a sexaholic. I kind of miss the musical accompaniment. Um, I, I can relate to your story as a child. My childhood was one of constant abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, deprivation, and abandonment. Constant. And as a very, very young child, some of my earliest memories are sexual in nature. Is it not my fault? I don't even look at fault anymore. In fact, I would venture to say it was a blessing. I'll give you an example of a man who's wounded in battle. They drag him into the tent and they shoot him up with morphine. It saves his life. And he deals with the heroin addiction later, the morphine addiction later on. But it saved his life. This, this addiction saved my life. It was how I coped. It was what made the pain go away. And uh, I'm so grateful to God that I have a way to deal with that now because it doesn't do me any good now. It's hurt me. It's, it's been very damaging to me. And I've become an abusive person. I became what I didn't want to be. Um, but God's given me a way out. So was it somebody's fault? Maybe. Was it a fault? But you know what? It was a blessing. And I have to let go of it now because it's not a blessing anymore. And... Um, Anyway, that's, that's how I've come to look at that. And, and as far as what I've done since then, I am powerless over lust. I guess you could say it's not my fault then, because I'm powerless over lust. But I am never helpless. Never helpless. And so the things I've done since then that have victimized people, I'm responsible for. Not my fault, but it is my responsibility. My addiction is my responsibility. It's the burden I have to carry and the thing... If somebody goes into a diabetic coma and crashes their car into me, it's their fault that they didn't take the insulin. It's their fault they didn't take care of themselves. And that's how I look at it. I have an addiction that can be very, very dangerous and destructive, and if I don't take care of it, I'm responsible for what happens. And I'm not, I'm not responsible because I have it, but I'm, for, I'm responsible for my recovery and, and for what goes on after that. And... Uh, I take that very seriously, and I take care of myself now. And uh, I am so grateful for this fellowship that allows me to, to do that, that has given my life back to me, given me a way to live, just a way to live. Um, the state of Wisconsin sure thinks I'm responsible for what I did because I spent time in jail for it. Um, and I don't want to ever do those things anymore. And I, you know, you all know <laughs> the story. This is it. So thanks. Bernadette Sexaholic. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Judson. Um, as any of you that have been in the fetishes meetings over the past conventions here, we've talked about how most, if maybe not all, of the fetishes are rooted in some kind of sexual abuse, whether the person knows it or not. Um, over my time looking at this and helping and discovering this with a lot of people, I found that to be the case. And um, I know some people who say, well, how broad are you going to define sexual abuse? I mean, it just could be that you happen to look at your mother nude once. It doesn't matter. I mean, I also hear, well, you were chronically abused and I only ha it only happened to me once. It, again, it doesn't matter. It's like how it impacts a person in their heart. Um, in my case, um, we didn't bond together. We fought. My brother... My mother abused my brother who took it out on me and abused me for many years, and then there were other incidences of abuse by neighbors, etc. Um, but there was also physical. And um, I guess, you know, what I want to say is, um, as I've told many people, I felt like a worm until just this year. I never thought I had an inner child. I just had this creature who had to get the heck out of there when your mother was beating you. And... Um, and it wasn't your mother, it was a monster, like an aliens, you know. And um, I just had a gift that is the strangest thing that happened this year. My mother, who's still alive, who said she never wanted to be a mother or even a woman, and only admitted that this year. I mean, we kind of knew, but she said it because she thinks she's dying. She told me, I've always been jealous of you. By the way, she never stopped my brother, even though she knew. She said, I've always been jealous of you for being molested. 
because I felt like that was attention that I never got. Because when I grew up, there was when I was 10, there was a pedophile down um, the hall who molested a number of girls and not me. And I wanted to know, why not me? So I'm going to tell you, I suddenly felt the gift of feeling from the age of maybe two or three that I remember, knowing right in that moment that this was something that was never meant to be, to, to impact my soul and my heart the way this person did. I feel blessed that I have those abilities to feel, and now I'm starting to discover an inner child. And that's because I know my mother never did and still doesn't feel, and I'm just praying that she gets to that point, but I see the difference now. Thank you. Hi, my name is Kirby. I am a sexaholic. Um, I haven't said this in years, but I am a survivor of incest. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. But if you lead with your weakness, then this is where I'm going to lead. I had a role in my family, kind of how to keep things together. No matter how bad things got, I would stay calm. And people could always tell me just how upset they were. Kind of like a peacekeeper. And I learned that one of the peacekeeping things I could do was that I could be sexually available for my father. Now, I can't say that he wanted to be sexual with men or with women. Now, he had a sexual addiction, and for him, it was sexual opportunity. And as an adult who is an addict, when I want a lust hit, I'm not looking for anything in particular other than the opportunity. And that's the dynamic, the selfish dynamic of the addiction. Now, I heard you say, you know, Marty, about not being able to say no. You know, for me, the fear of saying what I need is like somebody who has a fear of flying in airplanes or an agoraphobic. It's a real phobia. You know, it's a palatable fear. So never ever able to say no. Always keeping the peace. And, um, boy, I tell you, my sister, she was so jealous. My father would come home from a trip. I still have the gifts he gave me when I was six. They sit, they're sitting on my chest of drawers at home right now. And there's nothing for my sister and my brother. And it was years later that I said, You know, Deirdre, you just, you know, I don't think you understand. If you were going through what I was going through to be the favorite one, you'd say, Can you take it back? You know, I just, it was hard. Man, it was hard. Mm. And I can't believe I lived through it. You know, I've got a sexual addiction that is stuck to me. It's like it's, it's like tar that's been tattooed into my skin. It's not going anywhere. And I'd still, you know, I I was sharing to one person who said, how are you not, you're not a crack whore? How are you not out on the street selling yourself? I said, well, you know, when that choice came up, I I had to think about it. You know, I I had to go, well, you know, that's a way out. But I toughed it out. 
you know, just I didn't make that choice. But I tell you, it's not like I didn't have it cross my path. And, you know, you're looking at me and you're thinking, oh, this guy is kind of a jello mess. But, I mean, you're looking at somebody who I have been in my sexual therapy for a decade, solid. <laughs> Going to a therapist whose specialty was recovering from childhood sexual addiction. You know? And... Um, You know, I just, I don't think that I have a point to get across here. Other than to say that, you know, when people say this is happening, even if you cannot believe it, um, don't dismiss it, you know. Um, my, my wife cannot understand why my skin bristles. When my daughter says, don't kiss me, and she says, oh, please, just give me a kiss. You know, and for my wife and our daughter, that is an innocent tease. You know, there is none of the voltage behind it between them. But for me, they are sparking off an arc. Thank you. But I, just, I want to thank you for this panel and this discussion. I want to thank you for the opportunity to share. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you, Kirby. Sorry to cut you off, Kirby. We're just about out of time. One of the two other people, if they want to share briefly, that's fine. Uh, otherwise, we're going to wrap it up. Do you guys want to share? You can do it up the break. Okay. Okay, so so we're going to take a break. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.